morning. So good to be with you on this gorgeous, gorgeous weekend. Let's say after church today, maybe tonight, uh, you get invited to a gathering at someone's home. And you know most of the people there, but maybe there's a few people that you don't know. So then the moment happens. You get introduced to someone in a nanosecond after the names are exchanged. The other person says to you, so what do you do? And maybe you feel pretty good about your answer these days and you say, you know, I'm a nurse over at Rush or I do marketing for a startup company or I'm a student at Columbia. Maybe you kind of disguise your answer just a little bit. You say, I'm a CEO of a complex organization impacting three rising stars. And what that means, it's code for I'm a stay-at-home mom or dad with three very rambunctious children. <laughs> or maybe what's really hard, and I've been there, is you stumble through your answer because you're in transition. Maybe you're a freelancer and it's not going so great lately, or maybe you lost your job, and you're trying to come up with some kind of response that won't leave Donald Trump labeling you a loser or low energy or something like that. <laughs> the fact is that most of us go through our adult lives defining ourselves by what we do. This is the core of our identity. And I'm not sure if it's ever been harder in all of history to ground our identity in the right place because we live in a culture of narcissism. In a recent article in the New York Times, a writer named Arthur Brooks told the story of his teenage son who took a quiz. Did you know there's a quiz you can test for narcissism? So when asked how he did, the son said, great, I got the maximum score. <laughs> the word narcissism was really not discussed much when I was young. In fact, my generation was more focused, particularly in when, when we were raising children, in building positive self-esteem into those children. Some would say maybe we did our job a little too successfully because a study in 2010 showed that narcissism has increased by more than half since the early 1980s to 30%. The word comes from a Greek myth, you probably know this, where Narcissus falls in love not with himself but with his reflection. Writer Brooks says that in the modern version, Narcissus would fall in love with his own Instagram feed and starve himself to death while compulsively counting his followers. You and I attempt to attain the approval of other people by accumulating accomplishments. We're trying to craft an identity that will draw applause and admiration. And from the time we're very little, we begin to manufacture an identity based on how we hope and want other people to see us. We come, become masters at hiding and pretending. We learn how to sort of package ourselves. And I admit, this has been a struggle for me my whole life. Around the year 1500, there was a watershed event. You know what got invented that year? The mirror. Prior to that time, we went around probably not even really knowing what we looked like. Can you imagine how freeing it would be if there were no mirrors, no photos, no selfies, Maybe we could let go of this relentless need we have for people to approve of us. So if I asked you the question today, the simple question, who are you? I suspect your answer might have something to do with your job or some role that you play. But what if you had to answer outside of all those things? What if I said, who are you outside of your job and your roles? Well, today we're going to explore this issue of identity, and we're going to begin with this fundamental truth, which is that our identity, the core of it, is who before what. We're all walking around with a mixture of identities. 
One is our true self. But the second one is one that we fabricate. This is called the false self. It's also referred to in some places as the ego or the shadow self. It's a, it's a collection of these masks that we present ourselves with to the world. The goal for each of us is to discover our true self. This is the becoming who we are in God. Writer David Benner in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, says that beneath the roles and masks lies a possibility of a self that is as unique as a snowflake. It is an originality that has existed since God first loved us into existence. Look at this. He says, there's no deep knowing of God without a deep knowing of self, and no deep knowing of self without a deep knowing of God. So I want to explore together a character in the Bible who was on a quest for his identity. The character is jo Jacob, and his story would make an absolutely fascinating movie. We're going to cover a lot of scripture today, but we aren't even going to get to his entire story. I urge you to read it. Grab the Bibles in front of you um, or down below your seat and turn to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, uh, page 17 is where we're going to start. The book of Genesis, page 17. Jacob's identity didn't begin with just his birth. It actually began in the womb before he was even born. So we're going to start at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each within her and she said, why is this happening to me? They didn't have ultrasounds, so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them, an older dad for sure. Now the name Jacob is associated with a feature of his birth, and it implies this struggle in the womb. Jacob wanted to come out first. He wanted to be the twin born first. He did not succeed, but he's given the name Jacob, which means literally grasps the heel, and figuratively it means he deceives. Already, Jacob is competing with his older brother, and we're going to see two very dramatic moments of deception in their lives. But let's continue the story. Verse 27. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isn't it remarkable how so much of our identity is formed in our family of origin? Unless you're an only child, you know, if you have siblings, that we label different siblings. We say, she's the smart one, or he's the funny one, or she's the rebel. And actually, the problem with that is we get these scripts that we feel destined to live out in our lives. These two twins couldn't have been more different. They gravitated to entirely different interests. Esau was at home in the wild, on the move with animals. And Jacob was more of a contemplative, a quiet kind of guy favored by his mother. Esau's dad liked him best, mostly because of his cooking. But Jacob the deceiver was clever and opportunistic. He knew how to manipulate circumstances to get what he wanted. So let's look at this first episode of deception, verse 29. 
Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. Haven't you said that? I'm so hungry. I'm starving. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. It's a very sibling thing to say. Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's really mean to trick somebody when they're famished, when we're hungry. Esau loses his birthright, which belonged to the firstborn son. And in chapter 27, we're going to read of the second moment of deception. This one was over the father's blessing. But you need to understand, in the patriarchal society of the Old Testament, both the birthright and the blessing were a really big deal. They had a lot to do with your status and wealth as you continued on through your life. Now, I'm going to sum up the second story for you. You can read about it later if you like. But in this situation, Isaac is now very old and very weak, <clears throat> and he's almost blind. He called to his older son Esau and told him, grab your bow and go out and kill some game and make me a great meal. I think Isaac would have loved Publican's Restaurant. That's the time of thing he, he's really into. <laughs> then he promised, I will give you my blessing. Now, Rebecca, his wife, was also a deceiver. She overhears this conversation and she concocts a plan. She calls Jacob and she says, I want you to get the blessing. So she prepares a delicious supper. She tells Jacob to go put on some of Esau's clothes so he will smell like his brother. And then she puts hairy garments on his arms and around his neck so that it'll be very, very hairy. Goat skins. Excuse me. <clears throat> so Jacob brings the meal to his father. Isaac is suspicious. He even asks to touch him. Isaac says, are you really my son Esau? And the deceiver lies and says, I am. And so Jacob receives the blessing. Moments later, Esau comes in with his kill and he whips up dinner. And when he brings it to Isaac, the father says, who are you? Once Isaac discovers what happened, the Bible says he trembled violently. Look at chapter 27, verse 34. This is when Esau discovers what's happened. He heard his father's words, and he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. If that's not a sibling statement, I don't know what is. Me too, me too. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Now skip down to verse 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. In other words, my dad's going to die soon, and then I will kill my brother. Well, Jacob ends up leaving that region, partly out of concern for his safety. For 20 long years, he worked for a man named Laban. He was trying to earn the hand of his daughter in marriage. And after two decades, he decided to go back to his homeland. Now, he's had a lot of time to think about this rift in his relationship with his brother, and he feels great remorse. He wants to meet him and try to make it right. But he gets word that Elisha, uh, Esau has a militia of 400 men. 
So Jacob decides to send messengers up ahead before this meeting. And he sends him gifts. He sends him gifts of cattle and donkey and sheep and goats and even servants. He's hoping to soften the anger of his brother. The night before the big meeting, Jacob doesn't sleep too well. Have you ever had a night before you know you're going to have a really difficult conversation with someone? Maybe there's a rift in your relationship, something you want to reconcile, or something difficult you need to say. I don't know about you, but I don't sleep too well on those nights. This particular night, Jacob decides to sleep outside in the great outdoors. So let's see what happens. We're going to go to chapter 32. It's on page 24. Chapter 32, starting at verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and humans, and you have overcome. See, Jacob was deeply vulnerable and alone, and God came to him in human form that night. And as they fought, God struck him in the hollow of the thigh, and forever after that point, Jacob walked with a limp. But he's given a new name, a new identity. God called him Israel. That means a person who strives with God. And I think God was promising a new kind of relationship with Jacob, one that would be active and engaged and very honest. And the very next day, Jacob and Esau were reunited and the relationship was completely restored. I've taken a lot of our time to look at Jacob's story because I find it very encouraging. Just as Jacob could grow toward wholeness, so you and I can struggle with God. It'll be a lifelong struggle, I promise you. You're not going to walk out of here today and go, okay, I got my identity where it belongs. My experience has been this is a daily struggle, but we can struggle with God to see ourselves the way he sees us. We don't have to live out the scripts and the roles that we've been assigned. Jacob actually received a new name. And in the book of Revelation, we read that one day, each and every one of God's children is going to get a new and unique name, and it will be written on a white stone. Can't wait to see what my name will be, and you're going to have a new name as well. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as a single, unified self, but I'm actually learning that you and I are a collection of selves. It's more of a they, actually, than an I, and the truth is that many parts of ourselves remain hidden. We're kind of blissfully unaware of a lot of the parts of ourselves. Jacob may not have realized until later in life that he had this deceiving part of him. It was only as he wrestled with God toward wholeness that he could own and embrace that part of his identity. I have a close friend who's been on his own struggle with God the last few years. David and Caron Loveless are two of my most treasured friends. For 29 years, they pastored a thriving church in Orlando. Three years ago, on a Sunday afternoon, I got a text that I've never forgotten the words. It was an SOS text from Corone, and it simply said, please call me immediately. My world is falling apart. 
I couldn't imagine what was up. I didn't know if David had a serious illness, if something was wrong with one of their three sons, or maybe with one of their grandchildren. But when I called her, and what she told me was just so completely different than anything I expected. A hidden infidelity that David had ended years earlier was leaked to several people. When David discovered what had happened, he immediately called a meeting with the church elders, and he gave them a gut-wrenching, very full confession. Carone was in total shock. She knew nothing about this. Never in a million years could she have suspected that the husband that she adored could have been unfaithful. As soon as I could get a flight, I headed to Orlando, and I stayed at their home along with a couple of other close friends to sort of pastor them through this horrific week. The news was announced to the church, and then it was leaked to all the local newspapers. David resigned uh, from his role as senior pastor. And that week launched my friends into a journey of agonizing tears and relentless work with Christian counselors that they continue to this day. They've been ruthless in their quest for truth, and I couldn't be more proud to call them my brother and sister. About 18 months ago, I flew back to Orlando to be a part of a service that restored both of them to ministry. And their marriage, I can honestly say, is now way stronger than it ever was before. So much of their work, both of them, has centered on identity issues. In fact, they just released a book that they wrote together called Nothing to Prove. And in this book, David tells the story of one Sunday morning after the news had come out. Let me read this to you. He says, I was sitting out on our back porch one Sunday morning, three or four months after my resignation. It felt odd and unsettling that I was alone on a Sunday. Can you imagine that? Instead of leading the vibrant spiritual community we had pastored for decades. As I was sitting there in misery, shame, and guilt, I asked the Lord what he wanted me to be aware of at that moment. Almost instantly, I got the picture in my mind of a large banquet table with people sitting around it. And I pictured myself at one end of the table, and God was sitting at the other end. As I looked closer, the Lord seemed to say, David, here are all the different parts of you. And I could see my leadership self, my relational self, my successful self, my humorous self, my loving self, my generous self, my efficient self, my God-loving self. I also saw less desirable parts of me, my selfish self, my impatient self, my exhausted self, my intense self. As I looked around the table, I sensed the Lord say, David, these are the parts of yourself you have allowed at your table. Now, I want you to invite the other parts, the ones you kept hidden from yourself. Tears came to my eyes. I knew what God was asking for me, and it felt excruciating. With some reluctance, I visually invited to the table all the shunned parts of myself I had denied, my deceptive self, my approval-seeking self, my angry self, my unfaithful self. As I invited the most repugnant parts of me to the table, it was like I could see my accepted parts making faces at them. They seemed disgusted, embarrassed, and irritated that they were being asked to move over and make room for these low-life intruders. Then the Lord said, now we are all finally here. While I have known each part of you throughout your lifetime, you have denied these unseemly parts exist. 
but I have loved every part of you. I have seen every part in all its glory and its garbage. I don't see good and bad, acceptable and unacceptable parts. I just see you. And now I'm inviting you to acknowledge all the parts of you around the table. I want you to extend love and compassion to every part, just as I do. So David writes, with tears streaming down my face, I surrendered to what God was asking and welcomed each part of myself to the table of my life. If I could accept, if God could accept and love them, I could learn to do that too. That story uh, reveals to me that the parts of ourselves that you and I are not willing to look at actually become stronger and not weaker. When we're able to welcome every part of ourselves to the table, even the parts that we're ashamed of, we're then on our way to wholeness. So if there was a table with you sitting at one end and God at the other end, what chairs need to be pulled up to that table? What parts of you that you have wanted to deny need to be welcomed? God accepts these ugly parts as he makes us whole. It's a struggle. That's what happened for Jacob. That's what's happening for my friends David and Carone. That's the kind of struggle that I'm trying to engage in. And it's truly the most incredible news. The first expression of our true identity is that we are lavishly and unconditionally loved by our Heavenly Father. You know what, God doesn't simply tolerate you. He doesn't just like you. He loves you radically and passionately. In fact, our identity is even more about who we are. Fundamentally, our identity is about whose we are. Whose we are. David Benner says that an identity grounded in God would mean that when you and I think of who we are, when we just have that impulsive response, who am I? The first thing that will come to our mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. That would be the first thing we think of. This is how Jesus saw himself. You know, when he was baptized, there was a voice from heaven and God said, I am well pleased with you. And you know what I love to see? That was before Jesus did any miracles. That's before he spoke to the masses. That's before he fed the 5,000. God was delighted with him. Why? Just because he was his son. This totally messes with us in our work for reward kind of culture. We think we have to earn that love. But our Heavenly Father says, I'm already pleased with you. Even the parts that you want to hide. And when we see ourselves primarily as God's children, our identity gets grounded right where it belongs. I love this verse in 1 John. We read, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are, children of God. Now, words seem really inadequate when you're trying to describe the extravagant love of the Father. And even that word Father for some people is a challenge. For some whose earthly father was either absent or worse, abusive, or maybe even just neutral, you have a hard time understanding God as your heavenly father. None of us had perfect fathers, but some of us had a little bit of a head start. I'm one of those people. Uh, my father passed away two years ago, 
But all through my life, he was essentially loving and gentle, very patient, kind, very kind man. So many times he would look me in the eye and say, have I told you lately how proud I am of you? So I feel like I got launched into understanding God as my father in a fairly healthy way. Some of you are going to have to work a little harder to know him as your father, as a good, good father. And sometimes because words are so inadequate, I think we need an image. And I was blessed several years ago to come across the work of an artist named Jonathan Rogers. And essentially his work, his lifelong work, has been illustrating the strong hand of God with a child in the hand. And he's got about 25 or 30 of these images. I own two of them blown up uh, in my house. But I want to show you just five of them. And I want to invite you to discern today how you are doing with God. Which of these resonates most with you? Which is most descriptive of how you're feeling today? So let's look at the first one. I look at this little child and I see someone who is reaching out to God and seeking. And maybe some of you would describe yourself these days as just trying to be open and curious to who God is. You're wondering. That's part of why you're here today, maybe. You're just investigating. God, are you there? And if you are, what do you feel about me? And I want to invite you to know that God wants to respond to you. Maybe even later today, you could say, God, if you're real, would you make yourself known to me in some way? Would you help me get it? Would you help me understand? Maybe you look at this picture and you see someone who's looking for guidance, who's looking for wisdom from God. You know, the Bible says that if you seek God with all your heart, God says, I will be found by you. I promise you, you will find me if you seek for me with all your heart. So maybe you relate to that child today. Let's look at the second picture. This one is a child walking along with God step by step. This is the part of us that trusts God. We're holding on to his finger throughout the moments and the decisions of our day. The Bible says that he will not allow our feet to stumble, that God's going to lead us along paths that are filled with joy, then purpose and freedom. Do you see yourself today as a trusting child, holding on to the finger of your strong Heavenly Father? Or maybe you'll relate to this picture. I love this one. This is our playful self. This child is full of delight and joy and freedom. And what I love in this picture is that the child doesn't seem at all concerned that it might flip off that hand, you know, if it does a full somersault. It's totally trusting in its Heavenly Father. And I think the most exciting news today is that our Father wants to be our playmate. That when you laugh from the gut, when you're filled with joy, when you have that childlike spirit, He delights in you and He laughs right along with you. If you're celebrating today, bring that joy into God's presence. See yourself as His treasured, playful child and savor, savor these moments. You're in a good season. Some of you can't relate to any of those images because you feel more like this child all huddled up in the Father's hand. And I don't know what you're broken about. I don't know what you're sad or ashamed about. But this child may not even be aware that the hand is around him or her. The Bible promises us that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, 
that he will never, ever let you go, that he is with you and he's for you, whatever you may be walking through. Maybe you're walking through something really difficult at work. Maybe you're out of work. Maybe you're dealing with a medical situation that's frightening or the loss of a relationship. I don't know why your heart might be broken, but I do know this. You have a good father, really good father. And he cries with you. And he wants to be with you in it. So come to him. This last image is very different. I see this one as a child in victory. In fact, the artist Jonathan wrote the word yes at the bottom with an exclamation point. And some of you are celebrating. Maybe through this series, you've seen some growth in your character. Maybe you are taking back Monday and you're showing up at work with a different attitude. Maybe you've got more servanthood going on in your work life, or you're seeing your boss as a more human person, and you're learning to serve the human boss while you serve your ultimate boss, which is God. I don't know what you're victorious about, but I know this, God is rooting for you. In fact, one of the Psalms says, you stoop down to make me great. I love that. You stoop down to make me great. And you can be sure if you're saying yes, God is saying yes even louder, right along with you. My friends, our Heavenly Father wants us to bring every part of ourselves into his loving hand. You're going to go through all kinds of seasons in your life, all kinds of moments, even this week. There'll be highs and there'll be lows at work and outside of work. But as we learn to see ourselves primarily as God's treasured children, we can finally let go of our need to prove and protect and promote ourselves. And you know what, that's exhausting. It's exhausting. Real freedom comes when you say, I don't need to do that anymore. I can stop pushing. I can rest in the love of my Father. C.S. Lewis said it this way, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible, but that is the picture of God we see in the scriptures. If that's the picture we have, it will change not only the way we see ourselves, it will change the way we see everything. So here's my suggestion. If you go to a party or a gathering and someone says, so what do you do? It would not be remote, uh, relationally intelligent to say, well, essentially, I'm a treasured daughter or son of the Most High God. That's who I am. That would be really weird, so don't, don't do that, okay? Give your normal answer, whatever your normal answer is, but have another voice in your head while you're giving your answer. Say, but you know what? Fundamentally, that's not who I am. That role I play, that job I have, whatever it is, that's not fundamentally who I am. In our world of narcissism, I leave you with this radical thought. What God knows about you is far more important than what people think about you. What God knows about you. So as you go into work on Monday, if you have a toxic boss, if you have coworkers that drive you crazy, if you're not in your dream job, you're not in your sweet spot, you're so far from your sweet spot, or maybe you're looking at the uh, unemployment ads because you don't have a job right now, or maybe you're a full-time mom or dad, and you've got little ones that sometimes your patience wears thin. Whatever you're doing on Monday morning, know what God knows about you 
What he knows about you is that he adores you. He delights in you. You are his precious son or daughter. And that's what matters most. That's what makes all the difference in how we walk through this life. Your identity, just like Jacob's and my friend David and Caron, will be grounded in the right place as the treasured son or daughter of the Most High God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, first we thank you for the privilege of calling you Father. You even say we can call you Daddy. We come to you, Father, and we ask that you would help us to see ourselves the way you see us, to know that you truly do delight in us and that you actually welcome every part of us, even the ugly parts we try to deny and hide. Father, may we grow and be grounded in this struggle for our true identity, and may we know that you are good and you can be trusted. In Jesus' name, amen like to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a song together that really affirms these truths. It's about the fact that we have a good father, but I want to tell you this. Some of you are going to be able to sing this with great conviction because you know it to be true and you've known it for a long time and, and you can sing it out with conviction. For other people, you may be singing this as an expression of hope. Maybe you're still testing out, is he a good father, really? How can I know him? How can I affirm how he feels about me? And I invite you to sing it, even with your tentativeness, as a song of aspiration, as a song of hope. God, I hope that this is true about you, and I hope that it will go down to my toes, and I'll begin to sense it and own it for myself. Let's sing this together. 